0: Welcome to Michael Hoffman's Revisionist History, where we put the pedal to the metal when it comes to uncovering the forbidden and the suppressed. Many Americans are opposed to secret societies for the unfair advantage they give their members over the rest of our society, and in the case of the Freemasons, the role of their members in suborning jurors and judges with esoteric signs and gestures conveying their membership in the fraternity, Masons who are judges and jurors are required to give aid to fellow members of the Masonic Lodge, and there is no bar to tricking or defrauding non-Masons who are derogated as Cowan, C-O-W-A-N-S, it's spelled. Much of this chicanery was exposed in the 19th century by former President John Quincy Adams and President Lincoln's overseas emissary Thurlow Weed, and of course many others, including President John F. Kennedy, who spoke openly contra secret societies. In the 2004 presidential contest, Both candidates for the highest office in the land, the incumbent Republican President George W. Bush and his Democratic opponent, John Kerry, were both members of Skull and Bones. And in the case of Mr. Bush, so too was his father, George H.W. Bush, and his grandfather, Prescott Bush. In the course of an NBC News interview conducted by the late Tim Russert in the midst of the re-election campaign, Bush was asked about his Skull and Bones membership, to which he replied, it was too secret to talk about. A statement that this writer regards as disqualifying Mr. Bush from office in that he placed his oath to a secret society above the American people's right to know. And he did so brazenly in the expectation that so-called conservatives would not object in any meaningful way and that the more extremely gullible right-wingers would continue to consider Bush a devout Christian. And there was even a book written supporting that risible thesis. William F. Buckley Jr., a former CIA agent and Skull and Bones initiate, was able to successfully maintain a similar charade among his co-religionists, with his pose as a devout Catholic and, at the same time, a secret society member. Bonesmen, as they are known, are obsessed with skulls, as their name would indicate, and each is also given a grandfather clock, no doubt as a reminder of the adage, Tempus Fugit. Skull and Bones also evokes, at least in our minds, the engraving by the 18th century English artist William Hogarth, entitled the reward of cruelty, which would seem to portray an autopsy being conducted on a living human being. The role of autopsies in the punishment of human beings, both living and dead, is one that deserves further investigation. One notorious case of taking revenge on a cadaver by foul means was employed with regard to the corpse of Oliver Cromwell, whose body was disinterred in England by order of King Charles II. On January 30th, 1661, Cromwell's body was exhumed from Westminster Abbey and posthumously punished, publicly dragged through the streets of London, and then ceremonially decapitated. Cromwell's skull was impaled on a 20-foot pole and displayed in front of Westminster Hall. Cromwell's skull remained displayed on a pike, for some 20 years until it somehow was acquired by the skull and bonesmen of that day who traded it as a ritual object that passed through successive generations. Much like rumor has it that the skull of Native American chief Geronimo was disinterred from its burial place at Fort Sill in Oklahoma by a gang of Yale University skull and bones initiates headed by Prescott Bush. Legends about perversions performed with skulls and the belief that they are necessary to certain types of sorcery are at least as old as the story surrounding the medieval Knights Templar, who allegedly used decapitated heads in the psychotic belief that they could be made to talk. Certain cryonic corporations in America, for large sums, preserve cadavers or, for a lesser fee, the severed heads of the deceased, with a view toward their revival sometime in the future when technology will supposedly have the ability to achieve that end. It has been said that Baseball Hall of Famer Ted Williams is preserved in such fashion. Here today to help us sort out this history is Mark Steves, whose office is not far from the tombs of Yale. In addition to his research proclivities, Mark assists Sam Tripoli with Mr. Tripoli's online program titled The Tin Foil Hat Podcast, and Mark is the host of his own podcast, which is titled My Family Thinks I'm Crazy. Well, you're not alone in that, Mark. There have been over 250 episodes, including two in which Mark was kind enough to have yours truly appear. Hello, Mark. It's good to have you with us.
1: Wow, what a wonderful way to, to get this conversation started. It's a pleasure to be here, Mr. Hoffman, and uh, I will call you Michael, but I have a lot of respect for your work, and uh, I will say that very early on in my foray into this research, I synchronistic synchronistically happened upon a copy of Fleshing Out Skull and Bones, which happened to be in the public library of my hometown. And that great author, Chris Milligan, who compiled Anthony Sutton's work, happened to quote you several times, and uh, it wasn't years later until I realized that where he was quoting was this very same book that I also happened to get a few years ago titled Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare. So I owe you a, a debt of gratitude in helping this research uh, move along. But yeah, I have some some interesting things to to share. I'm, I'm not a, a scholar as much as I appreciate that uh, name. I, I dropped out of college around the time... That I discovered all of this. I was a student at uh, Gateway Community College, right nearby Yale's campus when this all sort of occurred to me. So uh, if you'd like, I can start and sort of share my story and how I got entangled in this research. Yes, please do, Mark. So I started with a fascination in nature and history, just always very curious. And When I was a student at this community college, I found it far more interesting to spend my time at the public green, the local downtown sort of uh, center area, than I did in class. And I would spend most of my time in between classes at this green. And little did I know the, the spot I had selected to sit behind these three churches happened to be a unmarked graveyard, an unmarked burial ground. And uh, I would later learn that there's a lot of history that I was just sort of rubbing shoulders with uh, unknowingly. And I happened to be reading, you know, all sorts of interesting books at that time, one of which happened to be a favorite. Uh, It was Carlos Castaneda's uh, Teachings of Don Juan, A Yaqui Way, which you know now later, 10 years later, I've sort of grown out of that material, but it was a part of my um informative uh youth. You know, the 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 curriculum that I gave myself rather than the curriculum that was given to me at, at school. So I say that because synchronistically, as I was reading about this Don Juan character, a gentleman came into my life who very much resembled on one in, in every respect. I mean, I'm in Connecticut. There aren't many Native Americans here to begin with that don't live on uh, the few reservations. So it was a strange sight to meet a Native American. And I had some sympathy for... Their, you know, plight with the government, I was wearing a shirt that featured sitting bull and it said, sure, you can trust the government. Just ask an Indian, you know, one of these truck stop style T-shirts that you get maybe at like a Army Navy store or something, right? Just a sort of basic screen print. And uh, yeah, I love that shirt. I would wear it all the time. And, and when Amos saw me wearing the, the sitting bull T-shirt, he certainly uh, recognized a friend in me. So we started... Our relationship sort of sparked a, a mentor-apprentice. At first, it was Native American culture that we talked about. But then Amos realized that uh, I had a, a broader interest in history and, and conspiracies. And he told me exactly why he had moved to New Haven. He originally hails from Arizona. And it goes a little something like this. He... he <laughs> Ended up in prison. I never really understood how. He, he was uh, a very kind person to me, so he didn't seem like the type to end up in jail. But he ended up in jail. I never asked him why. And when he got out of jail, he felt like he owed uh, his family and his you know, tribe redemption. And the way he was going to seek that redemption uh, was to go and commune with his ancestor who he had recently learned had been wronged, And you mentioned his ancestor in, in your wonderful intro, uh, the very infamous Geronimo who evaded the capture of the, you know, colonial forces, the, the army, and he was eventually captured and, and died in, in captivity. And, you know, before he died, he was wheeled around, a uh, and put on display, but Geronimo had this supernatural appeal, right? And he was certainly one of the most accomplished guerrilla fighters
0: in American history.
1: Well, that yeah, and that's that's for certain. And So a, a renegade like this definitely fit into my my worldview of of people to look up to, right? Or uh, Geronimo, and Amos, how he had gone about paying respect for Geronimo was. Being in New Haven, sort of getting his, uh, you know, foothold, he he was homeless at the time. Now he has a house and a job and he's doing really well for himself. But at the time he had just got out of prison and was homeless and using this relationship with Geronimo to give him hope, I I think. I mean, that's kind of where the silver lining for him was in a way. But I, I stood with him one time as he prayed in front of the tomb for his ancestor Geronimo, who had been disinterred at Fort Sill by Prescott Bush, along with others. And his skull and femur bones were brought to the tomb. This is something that uh, there has been uh, evidence for. There's been a series of Native American groups that have approached Yale to try to get the remains, you know, repatriated. And those attempts have been unsuccessful. Uh, but nonetheless, Amos had a different plan. Uh, he he wasn't going to smash down the door and take it himself. No, he decided that every day at noon, he would stand in front of the tomb and scream Geronimo's name from the bottom, the base of his lungs, a, a, a guttural roar, roaring Geronimo's name every day at noon and you know being a very impressionable young man this was incredibly powerful you know i wasn't the most confident guy uh so to to see someone do something like this in public was you know uh transformative to say the least uh for me but also uh it became something that i was personally invested in you know this this crime this tragedy I sympathize with Amos and and Geronimo and it became something that I wanted to research deeply. And, And also being a blue collar, you know, kid from Connecticut, the wealthiest state in the United States, I do have a chip on my shoulder. You know, I was at a community college right at the doorstep of one of the most esteemed ivy league institutions in the country a place where presidents have graduated from judges lawyers you know people who have shaped the fabric of this country and i had only a, a small inkling of any of that you know only growing up two towns away at public school we didn't learn anything about yale and this was intensely uh, fascinating once i started looking into the true history of Yale and how they've helped shape the the state of Connecticut in fact it's been really it's been really enlightening and it's been terrifying to a certain extent but it all started with that encounter with my friend Amos who I still am in contact with uh, I saw him this year and we spoke about this research that I'm doing and he you know his his final thesis, so to speak, he he has a lot of words to say about skull and bones, but he's always told me that it connects somehow. From what he can understand, it connects somehow to Benjamin Franklin and the Hellfire Club. So you know that's that's the the length of of his contribution, other than the moral philosophy that he did sort of infer onto me and teaching me some things that. I've taken with me and uh, have molded me into the man that I am today. You know, he taught me to be honest and and have integrity with people at a time in my life where I was, you know, on on the fringes. I was a young man who was smoking weed. I, I could have ended up a, a, a drug addict, you know, and, and uh, thanks to Amos and other influences, I started to use cannabis as a, a constructive tool. Uh, And I know that's something that you and I wanted to speak about, and maybe we can spend some time talking about that later on. But I do think that that enhanced whatever this intuition is that morphed into synchronicity. Uh, I think my relationship with cannabis um, definitely laid the foundation for the synchromysticism that I feel Somehow a part of, and I don't, I don't feel um, like I have complete agency over that. So it isn't <laughs> something that I'm naively proud of, like many people who talk about synchro mysticism. Uh, I, I have a, a certain amount of respect for whatever force it is, and and I'm curious about why I in particular was uh, pulled into this mystery, but. You know, if if that was just it, and I had only met Amos, then I wouldn't even say what I just said because, you know, that was only the beginning. Um, After I had formed this friendship with Amos and learned several things from him about plant medicine and the the true history of the United States and and where skull and bones possibly fit into that, uh, I had you know taken that and I had run with it. At one point. I had joined into this uh, unaccounted for, unregistered, ragtag, animal house-esque fraternity organization that was at one point in time associated with Southern Connecticut State University. Now uh, at its current status. And and when I was a part of it, it was a banned fraternity. So they were not allowed to conduct uh, business on campus like the other uh, lettered fraternities were. They were sort of an illegal fraternity house that really operated around just having parties, right? And that was sort of the, the impetus is that, oh, we have a, a house to party in. But there was a thin veneer of secrecy that I gleamed while joining this group, and I'd only joined because two of my best friends from high school were a part of it, and uh, dove in head first. and I, I became a part of this uh, lettered fraternity that you know for for worse or for better taught me uh many things and like i said had this thin veneer of secrecy and being that this is a fraternity in new haven cuz connecticut state the uh, southern connecticut state university is on the western half of new haven uh the city it's in the western portion yale is right in the center uh i felt like I was a part of the same sort of underbelly in a way. And even down to one of the sort of mock rituals that I had to undergo to become a part of this uh, lettered fraternity, they had us approach the tomb as a sort of fright, you know, a test of courage. Like, you you know, uh, we're going to blindfold you. We're going to have you get out of a car and you're going to be on a street. And sure enough, we get out of the car and we're on high street and they tell us, oh, there's this, you know, fraternity and and our fraternity is a part of this, you know, long line of tradition of fraternity in this city. And, you know, although there wasn't a direct connection to skull and bones or, or DKE, um, the fraternity I was in Omega Psi had this odd respect for skull and bones. And I, I, was very curious and, and kind of upset at that. And I, I approached some of the my, you know, new brothers saying like, you guys realize like, you know, this is a, a grand conspiracy. Like there are some pretty serious things about this group. And, and they sort of laughed it off and said like, oh yeah, well, you know, three generations before I became a brother, the brothers stole Skull and Bones uh, Jolly Roger flag. And this fraternity I was a part of happened to have uh, a Jolly Roger flag. So I'm like, you know, put, putting the pieces together here, thinking to myself, what? how did I go from, you know, Amos and the homeless people on the green to being a part of this, you know, for lack of a better description, Animal House-esque. I'm sure you're familiar with the movie Animal house uh fraternity and and they have this sort of like I said thin veneer of, of secrecy and and some sort of uh loose uh, attachment to this underbelly of course a Jolly Roger
0: flag is a pirate flag <clears throat> absolutely well and do you and, still do you feel that you're still under the influence of this fraternity or that you owe them any Allegiance
1: absolutely not no and and that's the sort of Interesting thing about being a part of something like that is it did remove a little bit of the um of the mystique in a sense because I did realize that there, there probably based on my experience are a lot of fraternities that corroborate with that experience where it's simply a a, a club where you know people are are able to you know push the line of debauchery to a certain degree with what they can get away with in parties and and such you know the things that people who are young think is a part of being young which i would argue is is more of a manipulation of our culture but uh but yeah it it it, it was not something that for me had any hold on my life then again i wasn't the uh i wasn't the the most inclined towards bureaucracy. And when I realized that that's what the inner workings of the fraternity really amounted to is just a sort of bureaucracy. I don't feel like my allegiance to the group has any sway. At first, I felt out of respect, like, oh, well, I shouldn't talk about uh, Omega Psi. But I don't feel like they're an organization that really has any influence on people outside of the bar scene you know like it it's just a, it's just a drinking club really is is what i've learned about this fraternity that haunted, i have- haunted already. by the ghost of john belushi <laughs> <laughs> exactly but you know to that you know to that effect we are in new haven so there is that larger atmosphere of intrigue that being kind of Nestled into this fraternity, I, I got to to get a glimpse of, and it was certainly informative, you know, and, and I've never been the one to enjoy um, drunkenness, right? Like I can enjoy a, a drink, but I don't enjoy drunkenness. And that was really the, the pitch for people at this fraternity is what I realized that's all they really had to offer was a sort of, uh, sanctuary of drunkenness. And, and that never appealed to me. And and I think that's a part of why our culture has a certain, um, bent towards stupidity, because these things are incentivized uh, overwhelmingly. So it's, it's funny now with the podcast, I have far more uh, associates and and peers than I ever did, because now I have people with, with common interests who I can talk about this stuff with. Uh, hence the title of my show, My Family Thinks I'm Crazy. But while my family was thinking I was crazy, being a part of this fraternity, I had made some some good friends, you know, one, one or two good friends that I still have. And, um, one of them happened to work at a bakery, a bakery that was nestled right here in new Haven. And their biggest client was Yale university. So I started working for this bakery as a delivery driver. And my hours were very odd, you know, 3 AM in the morning to 8 AM. I was out in a bakery van delivering pastries and bread. And because of the hours that I was keeping for this job, the people I was delivering to at Yale, uh, you know, they weren't there a lot of the times, right? They they hadn't gotten to work yet. So I had been given keys, I'd been given uh, access to all of these different facilities at Yale, you know, not, uh, you know, archives or anything extensive, but just from the average person looking in you know yale is sort of formidable with their ivory towers and whatnot and here i am just some sort of bakery delivery guy who's researching this stuff and and now i'm i'm feeling more like a secret agent you know i'm 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 operating uh below the radar sort of gathering information on this yale university and little did i know that one of the places that i had been delivering to was right in line with everything I was researching. Let me elaborate. So every Tuesday, I had a delivery at 88 Hill House Avenue. So James Hill House is who that's named for, and he was an incredibly uh, foundational, important foundational member of the colony of New Haven, or the beginnings of the, the transition from its role as a colony to what it became now as sort of county and a city. James Hill House is a big part of that, but, uh, 88 Hill House Ave was where I was delivering. And I was there so early that the janitor was vacuuming and he didn't have the patience to, you know, hear me knocking and and let me in. So he just told me a secret way on how to get in the building without a key. And I found this absolutely incredible, (laughs) so much fun. I, now I had, uh, uh, an opportunity to you know be allowed to break in, right? Which is you know I'm not someone who likes to break in and enter, but in the in the uh, role of a secret agent, it, it's it's somewhat exciting, if only in my mind. So I, I'm scaling this wall and hopping into this uh, courtyard, opening a door, going through the building, and this became my fun Tuesday routine. Well. On the infamous day of, well, I can't remember the day he passed, but when George H.W. Bush passed away, I looked down at the Yale newspaper in this 88 Hill House Avenue on this Tuesday, and it said, George H.W. Bush, former resident of 88 Hill House Avenue in New Haven, uh, passed away, you know, former president and had this whole obituary to him. And the building that I had been delivering pastries to in this very uh, sort of informal way uh, was the former home. Of the Bush family when they lived in New Haven, Connecticut. And it's just, it was so it, it really just smacked me across the face that day that why am I why am I only listening to podcasts? I should be talking about this stuff. And it was around that same year that I uh had met Sam Tripoli and uh and then began working with him. then this podcast started. Uh and there were there were a few other synchronicities that Aren't as you know worthy of, a, of of retelling, but overall, my experiences in New Haven really pulled me through certain corners that the average person wouldn't have found themselves. I'll give you another example. I happened to make a delivery to the former Wolf's Head Lodge, and upon arriving, I realized where I was, and I said, hey, you know, do you mind showing me around the building? I'm researching Yale's architecture, and I really love the way this building looks, and the woman was uh, absolutely pleased to hear that. I'm sure she did not expect that from a delivery guy, and she showed me around, and she showed me the inner workings of this Wolf's Head Lodge. Now, for those who who may have only heard of Skull and Bones, that is just one of forty active secret societies currently active in Yale University. That's right, forty. Now, only a handful of those are involved with anything of importance. Um, it's sort of a you know cultural. It's the culture of Yale to sort of form these groups now, uh, and some of them are are. Mocking the secret society traditions, and but the the important ones are still around, and Wolf's Lodge is still around, and that lodge, from what I understand, and if other researchers know more about this, including yourself, I would love to be corrected. But uh, from what I can surmise, the Wolf's Head Lodge is a sort of Freemasonic interest within the uh, secret society network. And I say that because of two things. One, their emblem is a wolf's head on top of an upside down Ankh, and the Egyptian Ankh, A-N-H-K, for those who can't understand my East Coast accent. Um, And you may know this. Michael, that a wolf's head, that phrase is sometimes used to refer uh, to the son of a mason, a wolf's head. So that's sort of where I've drawn the symbolic connection. And the other reason I think this wolf's head lodge may be uh, having Freemasonic interests with the Connecticut Grand Lodge of Freemasonry right down the street uh, is exactly that. The timing lines up perfectly. The Skull and Bones group was founded in 1832. The Grand Lodge of New Haven was created in 1840, I believe. And then shortly after that, in 1844, we have the Wolf's Head Lodge. So that... Are Those are two reasons why I suspect the Wolf's Head Lodge is a sort of Freemasonic interest within Yale. And that's not to say that Yale hadn't had Freemasonic influence from the get-go. Uh, many people may know there are different factions of Freemasonry. There's the Grand Orient, then then there's the more English uh, sort of version of Freemasonry. And from what I... Ex- From what I've exhumed from the the history books and whatnot, um, it seems like the Yale University founding uh, happens to line up perfectly with the founding of the Grand Lodge in London. And both of these groups, Yale University and the Freemasons, at least the sort of outward facing exoteric version of Freemasonry that was born in the 18th century, um, they were both influenced heavily by figures of the Royal Society. So uh, I think if we're going to look at the history of secret societies as it is, we have to take into account the factionalization and even the feuds that go on between these groups And that's sort of where I've tried to draw some uh, explanation with this story is because famously, people who research Skull and Bones, they've said things like, well, Skull and Bones is a German chapter. Uh, It's uh, initially a German organization and Yale is a chapter, a second chapter of this German organization. So, you know, that being said, I, I, sort of thought, okay, well, what's going on in Germany at that time in the early 1800s that would inspire uh, a guy like Alfonso Taft or William Huntington Russell to come back to Yale and and create this Skull and Bones Society. Maybe there was something that they were initiated into in Germany that would have uh, Made them do this, and maybe there was something going on at Yale that would have uh, persuaded them to bring an outside interest into this sort of uh, what's always been a pipeline to the uh, reins of control, so to speak. Right? We, you know, from the out- onset, Yale was founded by elite and for elite, right? And, and quickly after Yale was founded. There were a number of other Ivy League schools that came to prominence. Um, Harvard obviously was the first, next to the College of William and Mary, uh, Yale being, I believe, the uh, third or the second in that equation. I I'm not quite sure the the order, but those three colleges are sort of the foundation of the Royal Society's influence in the United States. And during the Revolution, I think things. You know change quite a bit and you have a lot of patriotism coming out of Yale but and this is just a suspicion I I'm not uh I'm not saying that I've proven this but my suspicion is that Yale uh, after the revolution began to uh, help sway the country back into England's control somehow and and again this is just a suspicion this is something that, All the research I've done so far is sort of, it's pointing me in this direction. And I'm, you know, comfortable saying that that direction may not pan out. But uh, that's partly why I was very uh, excited to speak with you about this, because uh, I I may be able to learn something from you and your perspective on on this whole saga. But uh, before I go on, maybe we can talk about New Haven itself and and its sort of history before, you know, before Yale got founded, because I think that's important to this story. Uh, Do you have any questions for me before I get into that? Well, has the Skull and Bones organization issued an
0: official response to the allegations about Geronimo's remains?
1: Well, Skull and Bones has not, as far as I know, but members of Skull and Bones have because when George W. Bush was president, there was a group of people who uh, tried to make this sort of like a presidential, like they tried to do it through the uh, the White House and and approach it that way rather than through Yale University because Yale University from its beginning has been a private institution, a private facing institution, and anytime the government of New Haven whether city or colonial tried to meddle in Yale's affairs, they would be, you know, uh, dealt with uh very quickly. I mean, you know, Yale has a, a lot of money to wield and has sort of kept Yale or sort of New Haven as a you know it's nanny state, so um, I don't know if uh, I don't know if if New Haven or Yale would even respect that sort of um, approach. You know, people there there was an approach in the eighteen hundreds by a tribe, and you know I don't know how true this story is, but from what I've heard or what, and what I've read is that the skull and bones group, whoever decided they would represent Skull and Bones for Yale, uh, they grabbed a skull out of the museum, a Native American child skull out of the museum, and said, oh, here's Geronimo's skull, you know, thinking that these Native Americans wouldn't be wise enough to tell the difference between an adult skull and a child skull. Out of Um, which museum? Well, out of the Yale collection, uh, whether it was displayed at the university
0: museum. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so
0: what was the response of the George W. Bush administration to the query about the uh, remains of Geronimo at uh, skull and bones in new Haven?
1: Well, they denied any knowledge of, of that. And they, you know, I actually do have the documents somewhere. I can read them uh, verbatim, but yeah, they, they denied any sort of culpability in that. And, uh, basically said well you got to prove it and one thing that i find curious is that geronimo's grave at fort sill has been covered over with cement so uh they they built some sort of what looks like one of these rosicrucian pyramids that they have over at quaker town they built one of those on top of his grave i don't know who who commissioned that? Whether it was the tribe that you know represents him, or or whether that was the you know base itself, or who did that? But yeah, I think that's kind of odd that now there is sort of a cement over the top of his grave. So this would you know stop anybody from going and and maybe proving that he's not there or his skull isn't there, um, possibly. Yeah, that's,
0: very, that's very interesting, that part of it. Also, um, I'm interested in what uh, your mentor Amos said about uh, Benjamin Franklin and Skull and Bones, because that's been on my radar screen recently with the uh, Netflix uh, program called Stranger Things, I believe is the name of it. Are you familiar with that?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Many people have... Uh... Have looked into Stranger Things and what they're, you know, alluding to with this sort of uh quote unquote fiction that they have in that series. So they've got a Hellfire
0: Club segment. And right. um my antenna sprouted up when I was at a local Walmart and I saw mixed in with the Warner Brothers cartoon t-shirts for kids was a Hell and Fire uh club t-shirt, which was fairly ominous. Uh, It had a bestial demonic figure on it, a bloody knife, a ball and chain. And then over the top, it said Hellfire Club. And then I found out that it was derived from this Netflix program, which is supposed to deflate our interest where uh, the response that they want from us is to say, oh, well, this is just pop culture, as if pop culture itself isn't one of the main gateways into Uh, indoctrinating people along the lines of making us initiates, uh, which is the thesis of my book, Twilight Language. Uh, This is Michael Hoffman's Revisionist History uh, podcast. We're located at www.revisionisthistory.org if you'd like to follow up with research materials, including my books. And we're speaking with Mark Steves today. And so when Amos mentioned Benjamin Franklin and Hellfire, Many of the founding fathers are falsely accused of being conspirators, in my opinion, because they had some relationship with the Society of Freemasons in the 18th century. And what I try to point out is, is that 18th century Freemasonry was on the cusp of the enormous revulsion, and a lot of us don't gauge the impact of that revulsion toward the wars of religion in the old world, rightly termed the old world. And in the new world, uh, many of the founders of America were absolutely uh, committed to not allowing that fratricidal war and rivalry to arise in the new world. And Freemasonry at the time was very little known. It promised this kind of hippie-like enlightenment and friendship and toleration and this was going to be an alternative to those religions which had operated inquisitions and of course the catholic inquisition is notorious whereas the protestant one uh, is uh, fairly obscured and one only has to read samuel rutherford's advocacy of a protestant inquisition or to study the history of for example queen elizabeth I, to understand the degree to which it was uh, operant but so i find that in many cases the founding fathers experimented with Freemasonry the way a lot of young people experimented with the hippie movement in terms of drugs and rock and roll and various promiscuous things that went on there. And then fairly quickly afterwards, uh, noticed that it was not what it promised to be and that there were a number of false uh, agendas and con men involved. And even the idea that one was to gain enlightenment specifically through uh, the abuse of drugs and things like that, turn people off. And so we have many respectable, intelligent, uh, Christian, conservative people who were once involved in uh, for uh, some time in the hippie movement. And I think that's fundamentally the same process that went on with Freemasonry in the 18th century. For example, when George Washington got a good look at it, he stopped attending the Masonic Lodge and then spoke uh, kind of a roundabout way against the Illuminati and, and against the occult in America as it was operating. But with Benjamin Franklin, oh, and I want to just parenthetically add that uh, Thomas Jefferson is falsely accused. Most recently, in a book called Freemasonry in the Revolutionary Atlantic World, the author presents no evidence. Same thing as uh, someone who I disparage quite a bit as a as a phony and a, and a very unreliable source, and that would be Manley Palmer Hall, who I think just fantasized half of his alleged occult history of America. But it said that Thomas Jefferson was a member of the Lodge of the Nine Muses, and nothing that I've researched on Jefferson has indicated that, particularly so in terms of his hostility toward the Talmud and the Kabbalah, which, which certainly is not something that Freemasons would evince. But I must say, and this aligns with what your mentor uh, informed you concerning, is the one founder who has probably the highest amount of prestige and respect in America today, and so much of the kind of hagiographic adulation is misplaced, in my opinion, is Ben Franklin, because Franklin was a sinister character in his early uh, involvement with the Masonic Lodge. Of course, he went on to be the Grand Master of two lodges, including the most important one in France. And as you intimated, uh, or your friend intimated, that he was certainly part of Sir Francis Dashwood's Hellfire Club in England. Dashwood was chancellor of the Exchequer, which is equivalent to the head of the treasury, and a very important man in England, and had these satanic uh, jokes and mockery of uh, the women that were involved and exploited in that and certainly was a very sinister organization. Franklin was a member. This is dismissed as just sort of animal house type fun like you were alluding to earlier when it was actually nothing of the sort. However, when he was 33 years old, he was implicated in the Masonic murder of Daniel Rees. His last name is spelled R-E-E-S. And this is largely glossed over by many modern biographers. Uh, For example, uh, Professor Thomas Kidd of Baylor University has written a biography of the religious life of uh, Benjamin Franklin. Franklin, of course, was baptized by Samuel Willard into a uh, Puritan, Orthodox Puritan family. Uh, Willard is presented as supposedly a very Orthodox conservative Puritan, but actually he was the spearhead for introducing usury uh, in Puritan circles. Nonetheless, that's how Franklin was raised but eventually as we all know he gravitated toward Freemasonry and became primary publisher of Masonic documents and when he was 33 years old there was the burning to death of Daniel Rees and he was implicated in that death as one of the accomplices and in Professor Kidd's book it's uh it, it's barely even mentioned and it's uh, glossed over in fact all of um uh, Franklin's tremendous involvement in the religion of Freemasonry. I mean, that's what it is. It's supposed to be a, a, a counter to the uh, established church, but actually it's a counter church along the philemic model. Uh, and the, uh, the, the concept of do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law obscures a secrecy for an institution which is far more brittle and authoritarian and tyrannical than even the papal church. And so uh, that's been covered up. And there was some initial publicity in the 18th century for what he did. But, you know, as you and I are familiar and our listeners are familiar with so many cover-ups today, uh, it's, been, it's been shoved under the rug. But that's very unfortunate. Some people can say, well, what are the fruits of Ben Franklin, on the other hand? Well, what are the fruits? I mean, it's the association of a malignant secret society with one of the most revered founders of our nation, And I don't think his career has been sufficiently plumbed. You mentioned uh, Yale being an engine driving America back toward uh, Great Britain. Great Britain remained hostile to the United States throughout the uh, uh, growth of the early republic. The War of 1812 is certainly evidence of that. And it Mm. seems to me that Franklin played some role there. And lastly, before we return to your narrative, I, I was happy that you talked about rivalry inside of Freemasonry itself, because one of the theses of my other book, *The Occult Renaissance Church of Rome*, which is not as well known or uh, as uh, much read, is that um, you know Freemasonry, of course, is Kabbalism for Gentiles. I'm talking. I'm referencing the Kabbalah, and uh, it was a result of a recruiting drive. The the Catholic Church has mounted for itself, and I should say the Church of Rome rather than the Catholic Church, because I believe that it was seriously deteriorated from the Renaissance onward with the occult infiltration of the Church. So it sort of became something else, the Church of Rome, rather than the universal Church of Jesus Christ, which it started out to be. And But this Church of Rome developed for itself a reputation, particularly in the 19th century, as the enemy of Freemasonry. And many Catholics, when I talk about the occult Renaissance, they say, oh, no, no, the Church has been uh, a formidable and implacable foe of Freemasonry. And they don't understand the rivalry. I mean, Ford and GM have been implacable proponents of automobiles over trains in America, and yet they have an intense rivalry between them. And uh, Kabbalism, the the fundamental aspect of Freemasonry, which is Kabbalism, first gained firm purchase in the West by Pope Alexander VI's protection of the Italian Kabbalist Pico della Mirandola and the subsequent papal cover, which was afforded German Catholic Kabbalist Johannes Reuchlin. So without the covert papal promotion of Kabbalism, Freemasonry would not have arisen in its familiar form. And I would just add before, again, we return to your narrative, the Papal Church of Rome had its own Kabbalistic system, which became a rival of the Protestant and post-Protestant Masonic versions. So competitors within the same occult tent were mistaken for polar opposites locked in separate oppositional universes. And this misapprehension continues to maintain its hold over the minds of millions. Now, when you talk about Yale University, you talk about the founders of Yale, and I listened to your broadcast on the Sam Tripoli program, the tinfoil hat, and I was concerned about being careful about understanding that uh, the Calvinist system, which is its enemies first called Puritanism, uh, because they wanted to purify the uh, Church of England, the so-called Anglican Church, Everything that I know about them, for whatever uh, foibles and pretensions they may have in connection with John Calvin, uh, they were certainly sincere people seeking after uh, a life which would correspond with the Gospels and with the biblical statutes and laws.
1: May I? May I? Certainly, I'll I'll revise myself because I, I I have learned so much. Just in the time period between this interview and that interview, which you just mentioned on Tinfoil Hat, uh, and and uh, the same is true between you know the other interval of bef- the you know episode I did prior to that one, right? Because I'm constantly learning, so uh, I've I've. I have to maybe correct myself and and say that, you know, although the Calvinistic fervor was uh, deep, maybe my suggestion that this was somehow uh, precluding Skull and Bones' is evil, uh, maybe that was a, a step too far. And in fact, I found that uh, by the time Skull and Bones had embedded itself within Yale, uh, the religious sort of ideals had shifted incredibly from the time that New Haven had been founded. So, yes, I appreciate the opportunity to correct myself there. And, you know, I'm still just uh, really, you know, learning a lot of this. I've kind of gone through my own Protestant Reformation in my own life, you know, being raised Catholic, uh, which Turned me towards atheism uh, because I just was turned <laughs> off by the you know Catholicism that I was exposed to, and then it was you know uh, God's grace and and cannabis that really um, informed me that I was wrong about atheism, and since then I've I've you know gone to great lengths to forge a relationship. Between myself and God, and and from what I understand, that's kind of what the Puritans set out to do: is to remove the middleman and 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 not uh, have this Anglican church influence. But Yale University, being a outwardly British institution, even to this day, uh, had that Anglican influence uh, sort of secede the Puritan founders. And uh, I do want to
0: address: Who do you think was instrumental in that devolution of the? original puritan uh motivation is there a particular figure at yale that you can finger for that
1: um i don't know what your thoughts on antimonium antimonyism is i may not be pronouncing that correctly um but that seems to be where the shift first began they there were some uh outside influences that came in and really the emphasis seems seems to have been on uh, a theocracy and the blending of church and state through a college which seems like this puritan impulse to education really was instrumental in the foundation of this country's uh, economy and and you know i don't know if we would have uh, succeeded in the war against the british for our freedom, if we didn't have the the bootstrapping, you know, hardworking New Englanders with their practicality and Puritan mindset that in, in bestowed that practicality upon them, uh, as I know you've you've written about, I found a uh, article on your website uh, that talks about this. So I do agree with you there, uh, Michael, on that. I do want to. Jump uh, back really quick to something you let said. Let me just say,
0: let me just say on antinomianism that yes. it was Lyman Beecher and the Beecher family that was much involved in this New Light and Old Light Calvinism, which mm-hmm. was at the center of the controversy about whether or not they were becoming opposed to the law, which is what antinomianism means, and becoming more and more secularized. And uh that that was uh, represented the devolution of the original Puritan impulse, and so that was something that greatly consumed the late eighteenth and early nineteenth century uh Calvinist uh hierarchy in America. And so, yeah, you've got your finger on it there, but go ahead, proceed.
1: well, and I should say, um i there was a a, a middle step too that I forgot I left out uh arm Armenianism, yes was another, uh was another in the many sort of shifts that took place. That was one of the phases. Deism. John, also, John
0: Wesley. John Wesley and the Methodists would be considered Armenian, and then Deism, uh, coming sort of out of that in a way. But also, um, people like John Toland uh, would have been independent of it. But yeah, those were all major controversies uh, for the people who were involved in the Protestant Reformation.
1: Yeah, you're right. Right. So, and this is this is all really centered at Harvard and Yale. And as you probably know, Harvard and Yale has, you know, uh, given the nation most of its influential people. I mean, so many people uh, came through Harvard and Yale at that time and then The founders of the other colleges, for the most part, you know, uh, aside from the College of William and Mary and Columbia University, uh, for the most part, the other colleges like Brown University, Princeton, and University of Pennsylvania were founded by people who were sort of in cahoots with Yale and Harvard. And uh, Benjamin Franklin, to circle back to him, he was uh, given an honorary degree from Yale, and this was because of his friendship with the seventh president of Yale. Uh, The first five leaders of Yale's college were actually rectors. They were uh, still religious oriented at that time. And around Thomas Clapp, he was the last rector and the first president of Yale. You have to imagine that. Him being the president, uh, first president in this time period, 1740s, right after the Grand Lodge of New Haven is founded, you have to wonder if maybe the Freemasons were uh, influential in that uh, liberal arts and all that um, being brought into Yale. Thomas Clapp awarded Benjamin Franklin the degree, but he was friends with Ezra Stile, who then became the seventh president. Thomas Clapp had a, an interest in astronomy and astrology, which I should point out. Uh, but Ezra Stiles is of more interest because he was the first man to ever study, at least uh, on record, study the Kabbalah in, in the New World. Uh, he brought Rabbi Chaim uh, Isaac Carrigal, who settled in Providence, Rhode Island, or somewhere near there. Uh, I think maybe Newport, and you know, started the first uh, Hebrew congregation in the colonies. And Ezra Stiles, who was the seventh president of Yale from uh, 1778 to 1795, he was not only the founder of uh, the Brown University, a member of the Society of Cincinnati, which many of the founding fathers were also a part of. Uh, he was you know, studying this uh, Kabbalah as well as having a painting done of him with a tetragrammaton artfully uh, painted behind him over his uh, right shoulder. So, you know there are many clues pointing to Ezra style.
0: Reference that's your reference to the writing out of uh, God's personal name Yahweh uh, as we believe it's pronounced, but Y H W H in the original Hebrew rather than Lord is the actual name of God, according to the uh, Hebrew Testament. Yeah. So that's, that, that is very interesting. And the Kabbalah there, I mean, it can be studied. I study it. Of course, I have the uh, uncensored Kabbalah from Stanford university and I have uh, all volumes of it and and I read it fairly regularly. So that is not necessarily an indication of any type of conspiracy, but on the other hand, when you look at, the kind of reverence that um, various Protestant exegetes, and certainly not all, I don't mean to indict them all, but I would say a significant minority, when I say significant, quite influential, who had tremendous reverence and respect for uh, Kabbalistic rabbis, as well as Moses Mamamides, who was not particularly a Kabbalist, but he uh, he is the uh, leading lawgiver of the Ashkenazim, And it was Mamadi's influence over the uh, Protestants who came to America that in some way contributed to the horrible misery that the African slaves experienced, because Mamadi's in his much revered uh, book, The Guide of the Perplexed, in its uncensored edition, and you can find that uncensored edition from the University of Chicago, they published it in the early 1960s, translated by... Uh, Shlomo Pines, it's volume two, I believe, page 618, but don't hold me to that. Where Mamamadi says that Black people are midway between human beings and the ape, if you can imagine that. Mamamadi's image is in Congress. His name is on numerous buildings all over America. During the uh, recent topplings of Southern Confederate statues and other racist statues, including, I was happy to see, I must say, I'm enough of an iconolist to have. Been glad to see uh, Albert Pike's statue come down. and uh, But on the other hand, Mamamides was untouchable and remains so to this day. And it's very difficult to penetrate the New York Times aura that it has around someone like Maimonides but nonetheless, Protestants mm-hmm. who would have rejected certain other aspects of Judaism, certainly they claim to be, at least nominally, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet they credited this anti-Christian, this hater of uh, Jesus, Moses Maimonides read him as a very wise sage, in other words, another uh, alternative way into understanding the scriptures, which I find just, you know, absolutely inconceivable in that Jesus condemned these oral traditions upon which uh, the rabbinic Talmudism and Kabbalism is based. But nonetheless, uh, as a result of that, the prestige of the so-called wisdom of Maimonides arose in the Antebellum South, and it contributed to the misery and mistreatment of Black people. So, I mean, officially in the intelligentsia and avant-garde of America, uh, Kabbalah is supposed to be and is presented as a very enlightened approach to esoteric knowledge. And yet, in fact, this underside of it, which is almost never discussed, and it is in my book, Judaism Discovered, uh, is again pushed to the side. We really need the kind of open mind that resists confirmation bias. I love how you said that um, after you looked into uh, some of your preconceptions that you had, you corrected them immediately. And you you say you're not a scholar, but that's actually the, the most fundamental attribute of a scholar, that we're not pursuing our biases and trying to find information that confirms them. But rather, we are explorers into the region's of knowledge, and wherever that knowledge contradicts what we have prejudged to be correct, then we change our views. And uh, that, so, I'm 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 happy that you do that, and and I think that that certainly makes you a colleague in terms of what I feel and believe.
1: Well, thank you. I really appreciate that, and I I should take this opportunity to I I want to expand on what we were discussing earlier about the difference between uh, the Freemasons of the foundation of this country and the Freemasons that maybe were alive during the uh, William Morgan affair. Uh, And, but first I should correct myself. It was the, uh, Civil action number 09303, uh, plaintiff Harlan Geronimo versus Barack Hussein Obama. And the plaintiffs, a group of 20 descendants of the Native American Geronimo, have sued President Barack Obama, Secretary of Defense Robert Gates, and Secretary of the Army Peter Guerin, uh, Yale University, and the Order of Skull and Bones, which, you know, I I wish they would have called it the Russell Trust. I don't know if these Native Americans uh, knew about the Russell Trust being sort of behind Skull and Bones. Maybe they thought Yale University was, but... uh, uh, it continues saying under the native american graves protection and repatriation act 25 usc 3001 uh, seeking among other things an order under section 3002 requiring the defendants to return geronimo's remains and pay money damages Uh, president obama gates and jaron have moved to dismiss the complaint for lack of subject matter jurisdiction and for failure to state a claim so, uh, although I'm not a lawyer, that seems to be uh, the most plain English I've ever read from uh, any sort of legal document. People should have no trouble understanding what uh, I just read there. Uh, they were, politely denied based on, you know, bureaucratic reasoning. So uh, yeah, and and it doesn't surprise me that New York Times is protecting this uh, heinous person, but uh, yeah, they don't have the best track record. And I should note that the founders have Henry Jarvis, uh, Raymond, and George Jones, although not being members of Skull and Bones, George Jones is interned in the very famous Sleepy Hollow Cemetery in a vault, a sepulcher, as they're formally known. And this is not uh, outside of the pattern uh, of what I found with many of these prominent figures. They end up buried in these altar-like vaults in in cemeteries, uh, very sort of prominent. And when you walk by them, they sort of demand a a bit of respect, right? they sort of imposed themselves on the rest of the graveyard. So uh, I don't think the New York Times gentleman founders were uh, skull and bones, but they quite possibly could have been a part of some other organization. Uh, I just. And this George
0: that, individual, he was the founder of what?
1: Of the New York Times, George Jones and, and Harry uh, Raymond.
0: I'd Thank have you. to look into that. I, I've never heard that before. What do you regard as the great secret of skull and bones? and w- and I don't expect you to know the per- secret per se, but what do you speculate concerning what it may be? I raised at the top of the broadcast the idea of uh, autopsies and uh, fascination with the uh, with the head or the skull. And I'm wondering what you've been able to uh, disinter?
1: Well, I think we're both on the same trail, so to speak, because, you know, we've already mentioned several things. Your intro touched on the very um, old, you know, certainly didn't originate with skull and bones, but this practice of sorcery through Skulls and and you know this idea that certain saints and their bones can be used for some sort of ceremonial purpose, right? We have this story of Saint John the Baptist's head being used in this way uh by the Templars, and very curiously, we have a um well, let's say let's say it like this: New Haven has a nine-square grid that served as the foundation for its uh, development. So it it was formed around this very even nine square grid oriented with the northwest corner uh, pointed sort of north uh, right at the sort of base of this alluvial plain uh, at the very deep Long Island Sound, uh, New Haven Harbor. So the geometry is odd. And New Haven's Skull and Bones tomb is situated on this one-way street that's called High Street, and the High Street goes in one direction towards this cemetery. Now, this cemetery happens to be the first cemetery in America. When I say that, I don't mean it's the first burial ground. Certainly, hundreds of people, thousands, millions of people had died and buried in America before this had been created. But this was the first cemetery of its kind in America. Uh, Not only was it uh, similar to what we know of graveyards today, where everyone has their own plot, uh, there was paved streets in between. I mean, paved. Now they're paved. I don't know if they were paved back then. Um, But either way, you have this sort of ornate um what what they called at the time the Garden of the Dead and it was designed for the elite for the well-to-do so that they can each have their own space and this was uh, circumstantial the the graveyard that I mentioned, the unmarked graveyard that I happened to uh, gravitate to in my college days uh that had become overrun by the time in the early, 19th century when they decided to create this grove cemetery and this was around the same time that skull and bones was founded um so why i'm bringing this up well the tomb is situated on high street um the street ends at this very egyptian gateway the headquarters
0: Uh, of skull and bones is known as the tomb and it's situated where again
1: go ahead on High Street, right, and uh, yes, it, it's known as the Tomb, and their sort of brother organization within Yale uh, is known as Book and Snake. I say brother organization because uh, Skull and Bones, Book and Snake. There's sort of a um, you know mimetic similarity there, and then also um, they are proximal to. This tomb, in a way, they have, uh, you know, both sides of this high street cornered. We are on one corner on the south side, you have the tomb, and then on the north corner uh, of the high street, where it meets the front of the graveyard, you have the book and snake tomb. And the book and snake tomb is more interesting uh, from the eye than the the skull and bones tomb. Uh, the Book and Snake Tomb is uh, made in the image of the Nike Temple of Greece. So it resembles the Nike Temple, uh, and it has the caduceus featured prominently as the uh, iron gates. So the, the you know, verticals of the iron gate are these caduceuses with snakes sort of slithering, you know, slithering. Um, and all of this is is architecturally significant, energetically significant. And I say all this to, to put the cherry on top, the crescendo, that at the uh, point in the cemetery where these very prominent skull and bones members are buried... They have this very mysterious man. I have no idea what he did while he was alive. The only thing I've been able to trace uh, about him is his uh, will, his final will. He was very wealthy. He was a resident of uh, one of the wealthiest uh, Districts in the whole country, New Canaan, Connecticut. Like I said before, Connecticut's the highest per capita wealthiest state, and New Canaan is the sixth wealthiest uh, area in Connecticut. And this man was part of that little town's founding, and his name was Samuel St. John. And he's buried in a very strange open tomb there's there's no other tombs like this uh in the cemetery it i say open because it has a sort of iron gate right so you can you can see through it's not sealed like uh like maybe uh the sepulcher that i mentioned before these vaults uh this is a, this is like a small building you know size of like a dog house uh, you can imagine <laughs> no disrespect to mr st john but uh Yeah, the the symbol that is featured on the cemetery gate, the very same cemetery gate that's modeled after the Temple of Hermes from Egypt that bears the emblem of the sun disk, the winged sun disk. Well, that very same emblem is on his tomb. And you don't see that on any other gravestone, any other grave marker. And he's buried right at the center of a cemetery plot that has the same exact iron gate that the rest of the cemetery, the boundary, the perimeter of the, the entire cemetery has an iron gate and this iron gate that perimeters the boundary of this burial plot is exactly the same. So it it almost, to me, impresses upon the eye the significance of this, this plot. Like, no other plots are fenced off the way this one is. It's almost to say like, this is the inner sanctum of the cemetery, right? And you have this very prominent family, the Sheffield family, they were a part of the Sheffield School of Science. This is the school of science that literally, fundamentally developed the industry of oil, they figured out the techniques that then became where the oil barons made all their money. So this all connects to Yale. There are other folks that are you know, responsible for discoveries in this realm. It wasn't Yale alone, but the Sheffield School of Science was pivotal in this very life, world-changing event that was the beginning of the oil industry. And the Sheffield School of Science was used by Skull and Bones to take over Yale University. They took over Yale University to the point where the Order of the File and Claw was formed. Now, people who are familiar with Anthony Sutton's book may be familiar with the Order of Skull, of, of File and Claw he's mentioned in, in their book. Uh, Anthony Sutton's book. They're, they're mentioned these, these, you know, burglars who break into the tomb and give us the only description we have of the inner sanctum of the Skull and Bones tomb. Uh, you know, that only happened because Yale had been taken over by Skull and Bones by this time in, in 1860. And the students were very concerned. They were when so. You say, when you
0: say taken over, what you're saying is Skull and Bones initiates were administering we were part of the administration of Yale University.
1: Absolutely. They so they effectively, um, you know, their alumni, Skull and Bones alumni, were wealthy and influential enough through their progress with the Sheffield School of Science that they were able to buy out, you know, Yale's interests, so to speak. And yes, basically, you know, from that point on, at least. For the next couple generations, you have men who are either a part of Skull and Bones or uh, connected in some way to Skull and Bones. as presidents and as a part of major figures in the administration at Yale, whether that's, you know, at the library or, you know, in various departments. So, yeah, from this point on in in Yale's history, uh, Skull and Bones, the Russell Trust Association, as they're legally known, uh, and the Sheffield School of Science took over Yale. And, and why am I bringing them into this? Well, they're buried in that Very same plot. Joseph Sheffield, who was sort of the figurehead of that uh, campaign to control Yale, he is buried right there next to Samuel St. John, this mysterious, uh, very endowed man who, you know, uh, gave all this money to his children. But I have no clue how he made this money. And it may be because he was uh, connected. Maybe to some old world money. The name Saint John connects to the French uh Saint saint And Saint John is sort of like an Americanization of Saint John, which is a French family uh that may or may not be connected to some secret societies, uh, that that I haven't gone as far to track down. But to circle back to what we were saying, um, about you know what my final sort of thesis or or maybe that's not the best way to put it where where this is all amounting to where this is all leading to um I think there is sorcery at work with skull and bones and Yale uh Yale being a school for God then becoming a school for science always being a school for the elite throughout and uh and that, has shaped our nation there's no doubt about Yale's influence but not many people acknowledge Yale's occult influence and that is where i find myself most fascinated and i've only just begun this research and uh there's there's i feel like there's so much i've i've left out but yeah i, I that saint john mystery is really the the tipping point for me because it does seem like the Order of Skull and Bones is a continuation of some German society that was a continuation of whatever the Templars represented. And, you know, as much as we have all of these rumors about the Templars, uh, they were very much a seafaring group, right? And this is important because the name Yale comes from a governor of the East India Trading Company. Uh, New England was incredibly prolific at shipping uh, the opium from China and Asia into the new world. I mean, the whole slave industry that the Boston Brahmins and you know, New Haven was certainly a part of that as well in the colonial days. So, you know, from human tra- trafficking to drug trafficking to uh, just straight up Money meddling and all of the things that come with, you know, the the banks of London and and the trading companies associated with them. Yale finds itself in the the loop with so many of these overlapping circles, and then Skull and Bones uh, defines, you know, a lot of the uh, conspiracy circles that become prominent after World War II. CIA. Uh, Council on Foreign Relations, the Bohemian Grove, you know, these groups are uh, filled with skull and bones men. And you have to wonder, you know, if Skull and Bones was uh, an attempt by some foreign power to infiltrate the American empire. And if they were successful, then maybe that explains why uh, it seems like after World War II, we became, you know, hellbent on, uh, on, on, self-destruction right i mean it did you know the 50s were grand but <laughs> after that it, it seems like there's been waves of um degradation and de-evolution rather than the progress that we experienced in the 17th 18th and even 19th century up until maybe the the civil war and uh, world war one sort of really uh pronounced the the down the decline right uh, Great Depression and all that that followed the Industrial Revolution. So, um, yeah, I've got a lot to learn, but I I think, you know, this has been really a great opportunity to um, bounce some of these ideas off of you, Mr. Hoffman. And uh, yeah, I do also, if we have time, want to circle back to that very quickly, that point about the French Freemasons and the British Freemasons. But uh, if we don't have time for that, that's fine. Maybe we can can schedule another conversation to expand on this further.
0: Uh, Well, well, if you could briefly encapsulate it, that might be good, just before we conclude.
1: Well, and before we got into the the Protestantism, which I really appreciate your insight on, and I'd like to continue that maybe uh, further and on another day. But uh, before you you brought that up, you mentioned something about Benjamin Franklin and his affiliations, and you know this kernel of information comes from someone you may be familiar with, uh, R- Dr. Richard Spence. Uh, he's written a book on. Crowley that's pretty popular, he's also written a book, uh, Wall Street and the Bolsheviks and uh, something I heard him comment on is that you know, England's Freemasonic lodges were concerned with royalty for the most part, whereas the French Grand Orient Freemasons were concerned with revolution and, and you know, the Russian Freemasons were sort of influenced to a great degree by the French Freemasons. And, and so were the American Freemasons, obviously, uh, influenced by that French Uh, Variation of Freemasonry, but the English Freemasonry in that tumultuous, you know, land that is England with their many, you know, uh, upheavals of royal families fighting with each other, there's been uh, this sort of impulse of nationalism that's you know whether that's from cromwell or whether that's from the the loyalists or whoever uh freemasonry seems to be serving that nationalistic impulse as well as that uh em- empirical impulse right i mean for for some time especially when the freemasons were uh, at the height of their influence the great britain was also at the height of its uh empire right i mean they they were this the empire that the sun never set on and uh and that Really, I think we can't, especially considering what you said about uh, the War of 1812, we can't discount Yale's British influence on America. You uh, have many of the Federalist uh, voices of the revolution coming from Yale in the North, these men who were, uh, you know, very invested in <laughs> English economy, who wanted a closer uh, relationship with England, possibly, although they they veiled those comments in, you know, uh, wanting a very strong federal government. Uh, I, I have a sense, and this is only a, a sense that maybe that was an early uh, instance of this, but when we look at the revolutionary war itself you have to take into account that the battle of new haven had a very curious outcome which is that when the general invaded uh this part of connecticut he you know was met by a ragtag group of uh new englanders who tried to fight off the british they were unsuccessful we didn't really have a strong uh colony here it's not like the most uh, suitable farmland, and the the shipping was really all the the economy was based around trading and the port, right? So it wasn't it was small work for New Haven to be invaded by Britain at that time, and they did, and they decided for whatever reason not to destroy the entire College of Yale. They spared Yale and uh, kidnapped the. Sixth president of Yale University, a man by the name of Naftali Daggett, who uh, was later killed in their captivity. So uh, it is interesting. I mean, that could be there could be many reasons why a General decides not to destroy uh, a city. But he commented saying that New Haven was too beautiful to destroy, and uh, many people say to this day that the Elm City has a you know certain. Americana to it, a very, you know, quintessential New England feel. And uh, Hill House, who I mentioned, he not only designed the first American cemetery, but he also decided that New Haven would become the Elm City, planting elm trees. And I should mention that the elm tree has historically been connected uh, symbolically to Saturn. So <laughs> death raises its head here in New Haven and or rears its ugly face here in New Haven. And that's why I've titled um, one of my presentations on this Armageddon or New Heaven, because it does feel like with uh, you, what you've discussed at length in your books, Mr. Hoffman, uh, Secret Society and Psychological Warfare in particular, uh, it, does, it does seem like Skull and Bones sort of precludes that. Uh, occult action that we see uh, going on in more recent history, uh, specifically with the dropping of the atom bomb. You know, a lot of the men who were involved with the uh, Manhattan Project were skull and bones. And I wonder if there was this apocalyptic impulse for them to, you know, bring on God's judgment by, uh, in, you know, causing this chaos and destruction. I mean, that that's again a speculation but uh, but that's why I need to look further into the um, religious aspects of this all because you know as a Christian or somebody who has uh, you know, Identifies as a Christian through my family and through my own beliefs. You know, I I don't personally have any millenaristic beliefs, but I don't think that every Christian can say that. And I think that millenarism, that idea that the world is going to end and we can somehow be a part of it, uh, I think that's been a very destructive impulse historically, and uh, it may have been a part of the motto of skull and bones in some way their fascination with death and skulls and robbery and even benjamin franklin had all of those uh you know skeletons buried under his uh house in london there so to bring up that one thing you mentioned about autopsy uh considering yale and harvard's uh prominence as medical schools yeah i would not be surprised if skull and bones uh made its initial um, sort of hijinks around grave robbery because Yale needed cadavers, right? I mean, that could be one reason why they had this propensity to rob graves. Whether they did that for very long, uh, you know, in, as an organization, I don't know. Uh, maybe they started doing that and then just decided that they would collect the skulls and you know to this day that practice of crooking is still something skull and bones does they just prefer to take things like license plates or uh, other mementos that are easily replaceable uh hence why my fraternity that I was once a part of bragged about crooking a Jolly Roger flag from Skull and Bones Dorm because they don't sleep inside of the tomb. They have another uh, housing building all to themselves and uh yeah i i don't know the men who did it but the guys that i you know can claim a sort of membership with they were brave enough to uh crook from the crooks and i'm very proud to say i was once a part of that organization that crooked from the crooks and we're
0: speaking with mark steves today uh and i'd like to add when mark talks about millenarianism that the current form of that and perhaps the most insidious is the dispensationalism of the right wing so-called evangelical christians in america which form a constituency for mike pence and and other people of that ilk and the uh dispensationalists are looking forward to the rebuilding of the temple of solomon which could potentially spark a nuclear war and would certainly represent an enormous catastrophe for the middle east they have the bible all wrong like majority of people who claim to be christians do Also, I think that it's very interesting that Mr. Steves is uh, fascinated by the layout, in other words, the toponymy of New Haven and how it relates in terms of architecture and graveyards. And one of our studies is on the uh, lines of latitude in America, particularly associated with the uh, creation destruction of primordial matter at the Trinity site, which is known as the atomic bomb blast that's dead set on the 33rd degree. Kennedy's assassination was off that degree just slightly at the 32nd. And in my book, Twilight Language, I bring up the 42nd degree of north parallel latitude, the psychic highway as historians, establishment historians refer to it, or the burned over district because so many seminal movements in American history were first birthed on that 42nd degree line or close to it. Well, Mark, guess where New Haven is located, the 41st degree of North Parallel Latitude. And I think that that's how we have to begin the world from the biggest holistic picture that we can. And Mark Steves is certainly an exponent from that. Mark has his own podcast, which I recommend, My Family Thinks I'm Crazy. And Mark, before we depart, is there anything you'd like to say uh, for your parting words?
1: This has been a wonderful opportunity to get into some really intense uh, topics with someone who I I deeply respect. That is you, Michael. So thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to be uh, the first guest on your podcast. Uh, I'm very grateful. And uh, for anyone who's interested in listening or reading what I've researched, I have uh, covered far more than we've been able to talk about in just this short amount of time, there's much of it available in interview form, and you can find all of that on my podcast. Just go ahead and search "My Family Thinks I'm Crazy" anywhere that you could listen to podcasts. And if you're a reader, uh, I have some articles on Substack that relate to this topic, so you can go to myfamilythinksimcrazy.substack.com and find all of that. And uh, Michael Hoffman, thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate this.
0: And we hope that there's a book coming out of Mark sometime in the near future as well. It certainly uh, would be a fascinating one. And I would like to make some additional remarks pertaining to and kind of afterward here, especially spinning off of Mr. Steve's comment about relics and the question of whether or not there is a reverse of the medieval Catholic reverence for relics that is something that is being practiced by the Skull and Bone Society at Yale University. First, let me digress by saying that you're listening to Michael Hoffman's Revisionist History. Our website is www.revisionisthistory.org. And at our site, you can purchase our books, newsletters, and recorded media. Protestant leaders like John Calvin minimized the spiritual value of material objects, but during the medieval Catholic era, there was a fascination with relics of the fragmented bodies of saints and the display of such relics and reliquaries as they were known, that is to say, containers shaped like the body parts. And if you think that's just a superstitious anachronism, let's think about some modern television detective stories like the series Bones of the Walking Dead, which exploit aspects of forensic science. Reading dead matter as if it was alive is a perilous project in that the necromancer and diabolist Dr. John Dee, who was astrologer royal to the supposedly orthodox conservative Queen Elizabeth I of England, predicted the reign of dead matter. And some of us have seen that as being a reference to the digitalization of our society and the robotic position of our society. And that caveat ought to be considered. I'd like to unravel the enigma of the skull and bone societies, at least as far as we can consider the concept that relics are a kind of protective talisman. In other words, in their abuse, they can be seen as a magical element. In fact, in the Middle Ages, crystal monstrances, as they were called, were designed to expose, and that's not monster, it's monstrance, M-O-N-S-T-R-A-N-C-E-S, were designed to expose these relics And Eamon Duffy, in his important book titled Royal Books and Holy Bones, states that these crystal monstrances had a crystal window designed to show off the fragments of bone that they contained, row after row of bones, and sometimes even severed heads and skulls. Now, possession of the body parts of saints was considered to be very important for the dominion of monasteries, castles, and kingdoms. So, for example, King Louis the Pious, who died on crusade, had his bones boiled down. The sinews and heart and intestines were boiled off so that the dried bones could be preserved more readily. This also occurred to his son, uh, Jean Treston, who also died on the crusade, and his remains were also uh, treated in that way, literally boiled for easy transport. And there is the story of Empress Constantina asking Pope Gregory the Great for the head of St. Paul, the apostle. And the Pope responded in June of 594 with horror stories of workmen struck dead for accidentally disturbing the alleged apostle's grave. In the 5th century, Council of Carthage required every altar to have a relic. And in Anglo-Saxon England, the relics of the martyrs of the early Roman church were prized above all. Uh, There was a ninth century Roman deacon ran a lucrative international trade in in holy bodies. He was ransacking the Roman catacombs for the bones of saints and sending them by mule train north and west to the kings and bishops and monasteries, eager, eager to acquire them. And those unable to afford a whole body or an entire head would procure a rib or a finger. Skulls were especially prized, as were the whole head, considered especially powerful, and there were reliquaries designed to hold these severed heads. Elizabeth's head was separated from her body soon after her death and displayed in a reliquary. Emperor Frederick II himself donated a gold crown and for the cleansed skull. The possession of this great relic gave medieval community, the community that possessed it, its status. And from the 12th century onwards, speaking reliquaries proliferated, shaped to represent the relics they contained as the head and the bust of the the skull that was inside of it. And according again to Eamon Duffy in his book, Royal Books and Holy Bones, on page 160, some of these skulls and severed heads were said to speak, And the reliquary speaking in the churches or cities that possessed it gained wealth and prestige from the possession of such a relic, which we can only call either miraculous or magical. Certainly we're dealing here with a concept of miraculous materiality. Now the question is, is the skull and bone society onto something? That whereas the intelligentsia dismisses these medieval practices as superstitious nonsense, Is there an underlying factor here which can be exploited by the occult and has the Skull and Bone Society at Yale done so? So then, is it any wonder when we consider the history of the Knights Templar, the granddaddies of the occult, who were accused of keeping severed heads in the belief that they could be made to speak so that in their trial in the early 14th century, one of the articles of accusation against the Templars, there were 127 offenses listed, was that they worshipped a human head and that that head was described as a skull that was made to speak. Well, there would be nothing particularly anomalous about that given the background we've already noted about relics in the Middle Ages. So the problem here was that this uh, head, allegedly, of course, possessed by the Knights Templar, was the wrong type of relic, according to the ecclesiastical authorities, because it was devoted to the occult dark arts. A speaking head per se, if it was powered by a miracle, was of course accepted. Now it's been assumed that most or all of the charges against the Knights Templar have been, or were politically or theologically motivated by partisans. However, the historian G. Legman, that's spelled L-E-G-M-A-N, regarded the Templars as indeed guilty as charged. And he was a 20th century historian with a, a reputation for lucidity. So, do we take the Skull and Bone Society title literally? Or is it simply a kind of black joke, a macabre joke on the public and on the gullible? Well, we won't be able to answer that until the Code of Silence, the omerta, that this type of occult mafia has been running out of New Haven, is finally broken. The Skull and Bone Society contains prodigious members who have a high reputation in society, and yet they've never broken the silence of their club. Perhaps they live under dire threats if they did so, but they have kept that silence with a remarkable unanimity, that, which has not been broken insofar as we know. And we do call on members of the Society of Skull and Bones to come forward with the relevant information the American people have the right to know about a society whose members have formed the government of the United States and top corporations in the world. This is Michael Hoffman. You've been listening to Michael Hoffman's Revisionist History. Our website is revisionisthistory.org, and this broadcast is made possible by the sale of our books, newsletters, CDs, and DVDs, as well as donations, which can be sent to Independent History and Research, Box 849, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, 83816. And there is also a donation form on our website, revisionisthistory.org. Thank you for joining me today. The entire broadcast is copyright 2023, all rights reserved.